Okay, thank you very much for joining us this afternoon for the Change Africa podcast live conversation. We're going to have a very in-depth discussion today about African media and investments um, with Biola Alabi. I have here with me Daniel, who is going to be my co-host. Um, so Biola Alabi is an African media expert with over 25 years of local and global media experience. She is um, currently the CEO of Biola Alabi Consulting. She also is the VP of Attica Ventures and serves as the deputy chair of the Lagos Angel Network. And she's based in Lagos. She's been working around Nigeria across the broadcast and coaching, uh, telecommunications and digital industries for a very long time. She was listed as one of the 20 youngest power women in Africa by Forbes in 2013. She has previously worked with leading brands like DSTV, uh, Africa's pay TV operator, Sesame Street, Big Wars, Dao Motors, amongst others. So, Bila obviously is a distinguished individual in the African media space. And we want to go into her life, um, her perspectives around the space. So, thank you very much for joining us, Bila. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so I would like to start a conversation on a background note. We know that you started. Um, you have done a lot of things in media, but originally you had an education or background in public health. So the question is, how do you move from public health, which is a quite far um, trajectory uh, normally, and then zoom that into um, media? What are the intersections? What were the moments that led you to you know, make a crossover from that path from uh, public health to media? Thank you. Thank you for that. It's always so interesting when I have these conversations about public health and media and this sense that they're so far apart. And I just never see that. I mean, I feel like part of I mean, one of the biggest things about public health is information and getting information to people. And a lot of that is mass information. And so one of my first um, jobs when I was doing um a traineeship as part of my requirements for graduation, I found this um, opportunity at a hospital and this hospital wanted to um, transform the birthing experience for women. And so they had basically launched um, something called the Mom Center and this center was going to be all inclusive and they were looking for someone to help with marketing. And so they came to the public health school. They recruited two of us to work with them on this. And so it was really, I mean, when we went to, when we went to see the place, it was under construction and it looked like a six star hotel. And so it was basically like the suites and everything was inclusive of what you would need for the time that you would need to give birth to your child. It was also, it was really luxurious, but it was accessible to everyone. It was at a normal hospital. In the, in the middle in the middle of Cincinnati. And so I remember it being under construction and we had to come up with a marketing plan for it. We had to come up with a media plan for it. And we had to come up for um, with a production. We had to do a production team so that they could actually film the place from like concept to production. I mean, sort of concept to finish building and then actually to first mom checking in. And they had these very elaborate systems where you come from, the minute you come in, you come straight up to the mom floor. So, I mean, anyone that's been in in a hospital in the U.S., you know it's kind of chaotic when you first get in because there's not really, there's a lot of people in the waiting room. There's a lot of, you're trying to get people to answer you. But this one was like, once you came in, you went straight up this elevator to the mom center and then they checked you in there. And another thing is that there was sort of like this feeling that after you had your child, people wanted you to leave as soon as possible because they needed that bed. And that's sort of how hospitals work in the U.S. is that it's about the number of beds available. But with the mom center, you could stay longer. And so I worked on this whole marketing campaign 
And I went back to school and um, finished up uh, my degree with a marketing minor because I just and en- I enjoyed everything about working on this. So at the center intersection of health and information and mass communication and production. So that's sort of how I started to get the sense that I wasn't going to be a purist when it came to public health, even though I had planned to go to grad school and get a PhD. I had started to get the sense that I wanted to do something different. Um, And also, too, I had still been telling my parents that I was basically doing public health as part of, as like a pre-med thing. So I also was coming to the, to the realization that I would have to break the news to them that that wasn't going to happen. So um, I think the mom center really showed me that there was so much more you can do with a public health degree. I guess you call yourself a generalist then because um, that foundation gave you a perspective into the possibilities that could happen in the media. So my question is, would you call yourself now a generalist or a specialist? And then how does the intercession of like knowledge from different fields really help in the, um, in helping build a career, a successful career? So I would say that, um, I will, I mean, I would say I've been a specialist for a very long time. And then now I would say I'm becoming a generalist again, as I go into, um, pure investing. I think that, so yes, I think, I think that it's actually not as simple as just sort of being a generalist or being a specialist. I think some people throughout their lives, these will change. And so sometimes you will be a purist, you'll be a specialist, and sometimes you'll be a generalist. I think also too, sometimes as you move up in your career, um, you will have to widen your scope. And so being a generalist sometimes comes in handy. And then sometimes you want to definitely be a specialist. So you want to build enough, I guess, uh, enough tools so that you have enough in your toolbox to be a generalist when you need to, and then to be a specialist when you need to. And now I feel like I'm a politician, the way I just answered that. <laughs> I totally agree with you. Uh, <laughs> no, but that's a good answer. So uh, let's go back to the start of all this. What do you, where do you think that in all the rules, I mean, this question is putting you in the corner, but in all the rules that you've been, where do you think you made the most impact? I have to say, like, in in the roles I've been, I would have to, I think two roles really stand out to me, and they'll always stand out to me. And that is my role at Sesame Street in the U.S. that really gave me the opportunity to work around the world in a different way. Um, And, um, of course, my role at DSTV, the leading pay TV operator on the continent, Um, Those two things will be, from a personal perspective, um, I think those will probably be the most most influential roles I've probably had on my career as well, that they've been most influential on my career. Yeah, so let's talk about Sesame Street. What do you feel that you did at Sesame Street in in detail, you know? Like, you know, you were working as... um, part of the Africa expansion team. So what particularly do you think that you contributed that when you reflect on makes you think that was a very crucial part of your career? So, I mean, working on the Africa team actually came much later. So when I first started there, I I actually was recruited to work on a very special project. And that project was a post 9-11 project um, to help children and parents make sense of what happened on 9-11. And so it was a very specific project that I had come up, I had sort of, I was thrown into it. Everyone was busy and they just needed someone to come and take this project. They, there was a big grant that had come in to, to develop something for children. Um, I had had a lot of experience in marketing and this was going to be my first sort of marketing media project and children it was new and um and so we started to have conversations with different people in the organization and i remember the first day that i needed to present my project i was still quite green i had i came up with a name just sort of like what i thought was a working title for the project everyone loved the name and um till today i think that there's there's more there are more and more projects that have actually been developed at Sesame Street under that name. And it was something simple. It was like, it was, you can ask 
the project was done in Spanish and it was also done in Mandarin to cater to the lower um, lower Manhattan where the where this incident had happened. And so dealing with multiple languages, having to do a video project in three different languages, having to create reading material for parents and children, coloring books. So really having an exposure to media, but also consumer products all in one go. And literally my first day on the job, it was it was it was life changing because I had also, you know, grown up watching Sesame Street. And so to be working there and to be working on such a influential project and also, you know, living in New York um, during that time and sort of seeing New Yorkers deal with the aftermath of 9-11 and having this opportunity to work on that project. It was really it was really a moment defining project for me and also seeing how powerful media media can be. Um, and so I think that was the number one thing. And then from there, I eventually started working on, um, once again, health related projects. So that's why sometimes I never feel like I get I veer too far from public health. And so the second big project I worked on there was dealing with um, childhood obesity, which was, uh, I mean, at that time was, I mean, getting to uh, it was growing and just getting scary in America. And people were talking a lot about um, about that. And so I was able to work on this project with a bank, um, one of the biggest banks on the eastern seaboard. They wanted to come in. They wanted to do something. And so together we worked and create, created a program called Happy Healthy Children. And we basically did everything from helping parents engage, giving parents toolkits to talk to their children, um, really helping children understand things around delayed gratification. And then also dealing with the fact that in the same country, there were children that were obese and children that were malnourished. And so how do you address those two extremes? And so really came close to dealing a lot with um, health professionals doing working a lot with researchers, because once again, when you're doing a Sesame Street project, it's based in research, it's based in evidence, and you're doing a lot of engagement with a lot of different people to come up with your final project, which then usually will have a, uh, it will have a media element, which is a video element. You will normally have a book, so you have to deal with the publishing department. You will have a toy, if you can create a toy to go with it. Um, you will have to have um, coloring books, so magazines that go with it. And so you have to interface with so many different people to create this one project that then can live on a shelf anywhere. So sometimes it could be part of the home video um, shelf life. So I had to learn a lot about retail as well. And so just really... Um, doing and and then from there i then started to work and do the same thing for international projects so once again developing these um standalone projects but for international projects and the first one i did was around um financial literacy yeah, i did another one around um global understanding and interdependency for children and that's where i then started to do more of my international work so that project as part of that project we did some elements of it in India, some elements of it in Bangladesh, some elements of it in South Africa. Um, and so I was able to start to branch into international. And then I started pitching that I wanted to be an international. Um, I felt much more um, that the work that needed to be done globally resonated with me, really getting um, early childhood education and media out to children and families in different countries really was exciting to me and it gave me an opportunity to go back to places that i had been before especially in southeast asia um and i had gone to southeast asia as um part of like a post-college um, work experience that i was doing in korea so i was able to go back to asia a lot but of course i really wanted to do something on the continent and that's when i really started lobbying heavily to bring sesame street to the continent. There was a project we had in South Africa. I wanted to expand and build that project out and I got the opportunity. And so it was a it was a progression of working on different things before I got the opportunity to work on Africa, which was really the what I wanted to do all along. But I think it took six years to get to that. When you when you started working on Africa, um, based on your experience having worked, you know, internationally in Southeast Asia, etc. What was that one thing that was so different about the approach in African media that you thought had to be improved 
So one of the things that was that was um, heartbreaking at the time was there was just such a low level of interest in investing in our children's education. There was just a sense that early childhood wasn't important and people didn't really understand it. And creating media for early childhood did not seem like a place that people wanted to invest. And this is globally. We find this challenge globally. But what's been really exciting um, and what I loved is that there had been a lot of research done around um, early childhood education and the return on investment. And they, that was, it was done by an economist at the University of Chicago. So there, were real, there was real data to show that there's a return on investment for every dollar you invest in early childhood education, you get an $18 return on that investment. Um, and I mean, you almost couldn't um, argue with that once you started t- telling people about that. So that was something that I really felt like we needed to change. And also um, education in mother tongue was something that um, when we would be engaging with officials on the continent, I wanted I wanted them to insist on that. And people just would always, ins- sometimes they would insist on English. And so Sesame Street will have to, I mean, Sesame Street will sometimes say, look, we really believe in mother tongue instruction. And so that was, that always caught me off guard because I always would think that the request would come from us and not um, them. And so that is something that I still think that we need a lot of improvement on. And then the quality of just what we were producing in general. I mean, this was for adults. This was for kids. Everything that we were producing at that time really needed um, a huge boost in quality. And so those were three things that I saw that I really thought that I could really be influential in making a difference, especially once I was able to sell Sesame Street on coming to the continent. So um, so that was, yeah, those three things were things that I really wanted to be a part of, um, that, uh, the movement that will change that. Thank you. But eventually you found success in bringing at least the indigenous languages that previously you didn't exist in some of these platforms when you came to DSTV. So how was that process like? Because obviously it means you had it all along, even before you got, you got there. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that I was always grateful about is as kids growing up in the U.S., um, there were t- there were times that we would also spend time in Nigeria. And so I'd al- al- always grown up speaking um, Yoruba, which I mean, of course, people that really speak it will tell you I don't. But, hey, I understand and I can speak. I can get by. <laughs> um, so the other part is a debate. We can have that discussion. But I always loved the fact that we were able to speak. Um, and then also, too, I mean, when we would go to supermarkets, I mean, even when I was younger, of course, it wasn't cool. But as I got older, it was something that we had that was unique, that we can that we we owned. And also, too, like, you know, growing up with other kids in America um, and you saw other kids, how they under, they spoke their indigenous language. So for us, it was I mean, it was something I always valued. I always valued that I could speak it Um all me and my siblings all speak the language, even, you know, even the ones that spend less time in, in Nigeria than I did or the other way around, um, because our parents always spoke it to us. And so I always felt that there was huge value. But also my time at Sesame Street very early on, really, I was exposed to so much data about uh, mother tongue instruction. I mean, I didn't know this before I came to Sesame Street, but Sesame Street, they had so much data. And that's why when they do a a local co-production, one of the things that you'll find is that... um, they they in, in a place like South Africa, it is um, in all of the 11 official languages. And that's, once again, something that Sesame Street is insist insist on. The other thing they also do is um, Spanish language programming. And so I always knew, but also to just from a language perspective, I always just felt like it was so important for us not to lose our language because, you know, language and culture go hand in hand. Um, and so I was really happy when, and I, I mean, I always loved the Yoruba films that I used to watch um, growing up. There was so much, they were packed with so much culture and language. I mean, just powerful meaning behind these phrases that I wanted to make sure that um, that didn't die. And so the minute I had the opportunity to um, 
the minute I had the opportunity to um, do it, I was able to um, I was able to do it at Sesame Street, um, and then when I was able to do it at DSTV. Um, I took the chance. And so that was a process in itself. I mean, it wasn't easy sort of pitching these and then getting them done and getting people to to buy into it. But eventually, I think that um, they've proven to be some of the best investments that anyone can make. And they've paid for themselves in in droves. So it's been a it's that was a really exciting um, time and opportunity to work on indigenous languages when I was at DSTV. Thank you. Yeah, so zeroing in on indigenous languages again, um, for the most, most people generally, Africans, would may be able to speak the language, but a lot of them find a difficulty in writing the language, for example. So you see that people, for example, there are a lot of literature that are coming up in indigenous languages. I don't know the case in Nigeria, but for where I am in Ghana now, you don't find that there are a crop of new, say, novels being written or stories being written in indigenous languages. What is your take on that? And do you think that, do we have some kind of uh, indigenous languages approaching a death, especially the written indigenous language? Um, uh, yes, I mean, I definitely think that we're having, we have a lot of challenges um, with the written word and the language, and there are very few people um, writing um, in indigenous languages today. So, I mean, that's definitely something that one needs to keep an eye on. But what I am excited about when it comes to indigenous languages, and hopefully this can also have an effect where people will go back to you know, to writing and more is audio. I believe that audio books, I mean, look at this, we're having a conversation via audio today and that's um, that's much more powerful and it's in a public space where people can join us. And so I'm very excited about the power of audio books, especially indigenous language. I'm, I'm excited about podcasts and um, the power of indigenous languages. Um, we've, we've just been playing around with doing a podcast about... Um, Yoruba music and the roots of it. And um, we have about four episodes that we're playing around with and we're going to do a few more and interviewing people that um, write and uh, make this music. And this is just a pure, I mean, just pure interest and personal project. But I do believe that um, a way back to us discovering our language is, of course, the 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 theater and what people are doing in theater. I believe that um, television and film there. I mean, when we first launched some of those channels, people weren't even creating content in that language. And so people had to scramble. We had to scramble to find enough hours to launch an indigenous language channel. Everyone had to content that they had done in English, but they did not have in their indigenous languages. And so one of the things that's exciting is that, you know, you have to write a script to make something. And so most of those scripts are written in, in indigenous languages. And so we believe that those are also ways to continue to to bring back the art of writing in these languages just by share, just by the share creation of television series, of films, of audio um, and then once people do see that there's an opportunity there, there's a market there, more people will flock to that. So I'm very excited about the new opportunities in broadcasting and publishing and that it is not as restrictive as it used to be. And so people can go out and create and find their own audience and they're not reliant on sort of big media um, audiences like we were before. Okay, so... I'd like to have your take on it. What do you think responsible media means? Hmm. Responsible media. I think that because all of us are creating media now and we're all creators and we are all broadcasters, we all have, I mean, people have so much power now in the palm of their hand to spread misinformation or to create misinformation. I think that we have to start to also think more about what is responsible media. We have to redefine what responsible media is. Before it was so much easier. You had, you know, you had people, you had regulations, you had things you could broadcast, you couldn't broadcast. You had, you had fines and you had, um, there were consequences for going out of that. I mean, I remember 
someone accidentally scheduled an ad um, before the time that you can show um, ads for an alcoholic beverage and we were fined. Um, and, you know, so because the regulatory environment is changing so much and there's just so, I mean, they just, they can't reach so many places. I think that we all have to have a different level of awareness and responsibility in the fact that we try not to hurt people. We try not to give people misinformation or information that can be harmful and that we all try to publish and be careful of what we publish so that it is not um, adding adding more um, pain to society. So responsible media is when creators can self-regulate and self-censor um and keeping the world safe I, I think that's important um but i think that i think the word responsible media is really morphing and changing and um and that's a conversation we all have to continue to have thank you thank you thank you very much on that um now let's talk about big brother i mean the intercession of that and <laughs> commentary of people around it you know there is this very traditional notion of what i guess african or african culture is supposed to be and how it's supposed to be displayed how do you um, intersect that with the notion of responsible media and what are your um uh, what are your responses to people who for example look at it as non-african or something that is foreign Mm. So one of the, I mean, I had this a lot when I was directly working on Big Brother Africa um, and also to just people that were extremely um, condescending, condescending because people okay. felt like it was it was such um, it was it was such cheap media. Um, and there were things that I felt that I could do and we could do differently um, number one, we felt like it was a great opportunity for to promote and explore youth culture and the convergence around that. Because one of the things I found was that as someone that was traveling around the world, that was traveling around Africa, I kept on I, I, I was I realized that there was um, I realized that there was there was a lot of things that were changing and we were becoming much more global in the way we looked at media. And so one of the things that I wanted to know was how can we bring Africans together so that Africans can explore, Africans can actually see how they have more in common than they didn't. But also, too, I wanted to explore what we can learn from each other. And so for me, it wasn't important. I mean, there were always things that you have to take the good and the bad when you're doing something and you're experimenting and you're being entrepreneurial with formats. And once the format owners allowed us to do that, I was really excited about exploring that. So for me, I felt like it was a great it was a great um, town hall for Africans to come together um, love it or hate it. You had an opinion about it. Um, and I think that a lot of the creators today that are actually doing very well in the creative economy on the continent were able to sort of get their license to create from that because it sort of broke us out of this bondage of what Africans are. And also we needed to redefine what Africans are, who Africans are and what African culture is. Culture is not static. And that's the conversation I kept on having with people. And we were able to have really important conversations. I mean, there was a situation in which um, someone slapped someone. And so we were able to have conversations about anger, anger management. We were able to have questions, conversations about gender equity. We were able to have conversations about communicable diseases on the continent. So once again, you can't sort of throw out the child with the bathwater. You have to sort of take the good and the bad and you have to balance that there could be something good that can come of this. Um, and I think that's what we always try to do during the time I was there was that we can create a pure fluffy show, but we could also create a show in which we we decide to tackle the challenges that we're facing on the show. I mean, there were. There were times where people were outside our, our offices because we hadn't had a decision yet on what to do 
when a male housemate slapped a female housemate. And so we were really trying to do the analysis to see, was this abuse? Was this a fight? What and how to deal with that and navigate that? And we had to bring in professionals. And I think these things changed the way Africans talked about domestic abuse, talked about gender equity, talked about psychology because we had to bring a psychologist into the house. They had to work with the different housemates, the people that were trauma and trauma. These were, I mean, some, some, and that's what I say to people. Like the challenge we have is that our languages sometimes don't have these words. And so we need to continue to create the words in our languages to describe what we're feeling. And I, I just felt like this was an opportunity to open some of those conversations. I'm particularly passionate about the deficit in our language in addressing trauma and mental health because it seems that that is something that goes across a lot of African languages because we don't culturally and historically, we've not confronted some of these issues now that these issues have become so prevalent and part of our our lives, um, we find it difficult to have language to describe, to characterize them. And I feel like that's a great... um, conclusion to this without question um obviously the the responsibility of media personnel have been um discussed but i want to talk about the leadership that media you know the, the how media can basically influence leadership and when people like you who have worked in media for a very long time think about leadership how do you see the contribution of media to leadership and how do you control the narrative so that it's it favors a certain um i guess view of leadership or view of um of opportunity in building a new narrative in any space you know around elections around public opinion etc Mm. So I'll give you an example of um, what media can do and how media can change the way we see ourselves and our position in the world. So when I started um, talking about African media and I started to showcase what we were creating, a lot of people were extremely, um, once again, um, they wanted to disconnect and disaggregate from things like Nollywood. There was a huge sense from people that Nollywood did not represent them. And one of the things I told people is that if you look at the history of Toyota, Toyota did not become Toyota overnight. If you look at the history of Hollywood, Hollywood did not become Hollywood overnight. Um, If you look at Disney, I mean, I love studying brands and the origins of brands. And I've, you know, I've spent time studying these and the and the journey and the the history of these brands. And so I felt like we were building something really important in Nollywood and that people you didn't have to like it. But it it was important to recognize that it was powerful. And Nollywood started to really engage and talk about a lot of things that we didn't talk about. But what it did was give Nigerians a different voice and a different place in the world. At that time, you know, there was such a negative tone in um, the way people, the perception of Nigerians. And then to have this cultural export that is being consumed around the continent that is influencing language that is influencing the way Africans see themselves. I remember going to the Maasai Mara and people finding out that we were from Nigeria and they were like, do you know this person? Do you know that person? Um, And my friend at the time was like, yeah, I would love to say I don't, but my friend here knows all those people you're talking about. And for the rest of my trip, I think, I I mean, my 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 level of who I was got escalated. And the rest of the trip was um, this first class treatment. Um, And it was it was because we were building something and till today. And I think that's the power of narratives and changing the narratives. And I think when we think about leadership and how we change the narrative around leadership on the continent, unfortunately today, because of the type of leadership we have, leadership thinks of media as as part of a propaganda machine. 
But that's changing. And that's why people that's why you see leaders around the continent banning social media because they don't have any control over it. And it is changing the way you lead. It is changing the way people see things. It is changing what you can hide and what you can't what you can and can't hide. And I think these are the beginning. Uh, this is going to be the th- these are things that are going to change the way we think and look at media forever um, and leadership on the continent. I also think that I would love to see more leaders be brave and lead in public and actually use media as part of their um, engagement with people. Um, But I think people are afraid. I think that there's still a lot of hangups that media works for them. And you'll see how people navigate media. You'll see how people navigate um, interactions with journalists. and I think those are the things that still have to change. I think that people have to fig- we have to figure out a way to make leaders accountable. But that's only going to happen when you start to see leaders that are leading in public. And that's coming. That is coming. People are going to show you more of what they're doing. And that's going to be transformative. But you're seeing this happen globally. Leaders are um, leaders are confused by how to use these new transparent tools. Um, And I think that's what media does. It it makes things transparent. It brings transparency to the process. And so I'm looking forward to see how more people use media and self-broadcasting platforms like this to tell us what they're doing and um, how we also use it to change the narrative and bring a sense of pride back to who we are as people. Thank you. Um, So, Nollywood is, you know, getting a lot of attention, global attention, deservingly now. I mean, the truth is that even, say, two decades ago, Nollywood still was a big industry, but players like Netflix, they are putting the mu- the, the, the movies and the media that we are creating on the global platform. Um, some of the movies are trending, and mm-hmm. almost everyone in the world is watching that. What do you think is the difference between the Nollywood of, say, 10, 15 years ago and what is happening now? So, I mean, I think that um, one of the th- the biggest difference about the Nollywood of then and the Nollywood of now is the 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 quality. I mean, I think the quality of our stories are getting better every day. The practitioners in the industry are getting better every day. Um, the narratives are being stretched. We're also trying to see where we can go with our stories. But the biggest thing is that we now we now love and own our own stories. And I think that once you love who you are, the world has to love you. And I think that before Nollywood wasn't Nollywood was doing what it was doing, but the public didn't know if they wanted to love Nollywood. And that confusion created some confusion in Nollywood because Nollywood is also trying to say, why wouldn't you love me? And I think that now that Nollywood says, you know what, we love what we're doing. We love who we are. The public is saying we love you and we love what you're doing. The world is going to love you. And I think that's the those are the progressions and the um, transition that we're seeing. But not only in Nollywood, across the continent. And um, and we're also leaning into our different superpowers. And so places like Nigeria leaning into more of the story and places like Kenya leaning into more of just this amazing technical um, te- technical expertise they're building and South Africa leaning into more of the production facilities and the landscapes that they're able to offer a global audience films can only show from this time to this time at this there was so many restrictions i mean as a foreigner living there you could barely watch a film um a, an american film or a film that wasn't dubbed in korean and had sub- english subtitles it was it was always funny like i remember watching the wedding singer it was dubbed in korean with english subtitles but these were all the incentives that they used to turn Korean and Korea into a powerhouse of culture today. And so um, now what that means is that if it could happen in Korea, it can happen anywhere. And so global streamers are looking for how to hasten that process and discover the next big content hub. And I think that's that's the position and the opportunity we have on the continent. Yes, Thank so- you. Maybe let's go back um, to something we're talking about. You know, the opportunities that exist now to create are just a lot. And we're talking about responsible media. 
where you made a very crucial remark that responsible media has to be now individual. Like every creator must put it upon themselves to want to um, build media that is um, sensitive to their audience, build media that is um, empowering, build media that is not necessarily looking up to some laws to come and regulate them, but know what is right, you know. Um, yeah. But also, what happens to things like intellectual property? Someone creates media on a, pl- a podcast platform, um, Instagram platform, it gets, you know, even there's a remiss, right? Because the funny thing, there is a, a feature on Snapchat that allows you to do that. It got remiss and then someone takes it out. How do we, you know, talk about the intellectual property of new media that are coming up and how do we start a conversation with that? Hmm. Um, that, I mean, that's a, that's a real conundrum that once again has to be part of this mix of the creative economy, the huge opportunity, and also the, the, the things that still need to be created. Um, and that is really around protecting the things you create and also even figuring out what is original and what is not, because we're also, we also have so many different influences today. Um, we also have to think differently about intellectual property and what is an original creation and what is an amalgamation of all the different influences you've had and you've made it into something new and how do you how do you own that um i think that there's a lot of different technologies that are coming up that will be able to plug into simple places and into into just different platforms to help you retain your intellectual property but that is that's coming i've seen some people have pitched me some um i'm excited about these things i'm excited of course about um blockchain because once again this is a way for people to track and continue to get paid and royalties royalties were one of the toughest things to track and pay even um, on big platforms and there's always conflict and there's always been disputes about that and I think that um, technology is going to really eradicate a lot of those um, misconceptions but I think also too part of being responsible is being responsible being a responsible creator and being a responsible um, consumer so that we also are making sure that we're giving people their, their due and people are able to live off what they're creating and able to protect it and able to own it for a long, long, um, for a lifetime um, or for as long as they want to. And so even the um, intellectual property laws are being reviewed, and um, and and I think that that's all that's all part of culture and the evolution and the fact that we're not stagnant and we're constantly changing as we embrace new technology, as we embrace new ways of broadcasting, as we embrace new ways of consuming content. That we also continue to also make sure that there's a responsible discussion happening uh, happening on the back end of that. Thank you. Yeah, so we are still talking African media and investment with Viola B. If you're listening to us and you want to make a comment about what is happening, you can use the hashtag Change Africa Podcast and follow this conversation. We've up to now been talking about a lot of things. We've talked about her work from Sesame Street and indigenous languages. We've talked about leadership. We've talked about intellectual poverty. We talk about Big Bad Africa and a lot of things. So you can um, continue to put your remarks. You said a lot of profound things that if you want to um, put online, you can just use the hashtag Ten Africa podcast or if you have a commentary around anything that has been said so far. So we've talked so far about media. Now let's start um, talking about investment. How did you start getting in investments, more technology investments? Um, so I actually started engaging um, through a client of mine that wanted to do early stage investments. So after DSTV, while I was still trying to set up my company, I did some work for Econet and Econet wanted to transition from being a pure 
um, telco play into being a digital player. And so that was media and that was also um, e-commerce and early stage investing. They wanted to invest in companies across the continent. And so during the process of seeing some really amazing entrepreneurs looking at um, doing due diligence on some companies, I started to realize that for some of the um, entrepreneurs we were meeting, there were a lot of things that they needed done and someone like me could help them. But at the time, I still didn't really, I still wasn't sure of how someone like me could help them because I was busy. Uh, and I then got approached by a media entrepreneur who was doing a digital media platform. He said he wanted me on board as, a, as an advisor and investor. And that was my first check that I wrote and um, never stopped after that. Just kept on figuring out ways to help entrepreneurs um, and working with entrepreneurs, taking them really from from the very, very early stage. After a couple of investments, I felt like I needed to learn more about how to help. And that's when I joined Lagos Angel Network. And then from Lagos Angel Network, started to do much more around, learn more around, you know, doing syndicates and, you know, just tech investing in general. And then started to really develop what type of companies I like, what type of companies I enjoy working with. And that's really been my journey into investment and then um, and now doing and most doing mostly investing or advising people on investments or um, helping. Right now, I'm working with the group that is working to set up their own angel network in another country. Um, I get calls from just random people that say, look, we want to set up an angel. I mean, angel network. Last one was someone in in Greece. Um, and just doing this work, really seeing how we help create the next generation of tinkers and innovators and, you know, change makers. Yeah. Hi, Biola. Daniel here. Um, hi, yeah, Daniel. I was, yeah, hi. I was very interesting so far. You know that my passion is even closer to the investment side. So I have a question for you in terms of how you utilize your expertise in media now in on the investment side. Like both, for instance, maybe if there is a component or where you use media and maybe your profile for deal flow and then maybe also on the operational side of the startups, whether there is are aspects of uh, how you come in even with that particular expertise, and then maybe otherwise, what else it helps you in general, like the media expertise? Sure, sure, sure. Um, so, I mean, I think that a lot of the intuition and a lot of the um, challenge that you as an entrepreneur have um, is what you, I mean, that's what you that's what they need from you, an investor. So one of the things I found is if I put my media hat on um, as a media person, you're looking for a few things. You're looking to build an enduring television channel, for example, to build an enduring television channel. You need a certain number of hits. Not everything you put on is going to be a hit, but you need a certain number of hit shows. So you're constantly talking to creators. People are constantly pitching you their ideas. And you're always trying to make a decision to say which one of these will work. Um, I remember we had I, I had a buyer once that I used to work with. And one of the things about this buyer was the fact that she can always pick a winner. She went to a market once and we were at a market once looking at different shows. There were two shows that people were pitching. And you only I mean, sometimes you only have a budget to buy one. And it was um, ER and Chicago Hope. And what you're trying to do is create what we call appointment viewing. You want people to come back to your channel at the same time, every day, every week. Of course, that's all gone with streaming. But back then, um, back in the day, that's what you're trying to create so that you can have advertisers, you can have subscribers. You're really trying to create that. And so you want a show that is going to hold people for a very long time. And so in trying to make the decision between Chicago Hope and ER, you had to figure out which one was going to have the best longevity. And she picked ER. ER ended up being a hit and it ended up making a lot of money for the channel. 
to me, I feel like this is exactly what you're doing when you meet startups. You're trying to figure out which startup to invest in, which startup is going to be the best return for you and your investors, and which which one is going to add the most value to what you're building from a portfolio perspective, which when you look at a television channel, it is a portfolio of programs that you're putting together. And so I always tell people, once again, it's sort of like when we started this conversation from public health to media, from media to investing, I always tell people that a lot of the skills you build in one place tend to be transferable. And so, and so when I look at the skills that I've built over the years, I find them extremely useful as an investor. And then what are the other perks and bonuses? The other perks and bonuses is because, of course, because of my profile, because people do know who I am, I do get, um, yes, I do leverage it for deal flow. Um, but I also leverage, I mean, also because I have built quite a reputation helping um, startups and helping founders, that founders tend to recommend other founders to come and work with me and pitch me. Also, too, I mean, we're very focused on building in the real sector. That is the area that we're very interested in investing in. And so we tend to get a different kind of entrepreneur sometimes. And those entrepreneurs always bring other entrepreneurs. And so and it's the same thing with creatives, with creators. If you find a good creator, they usually hang out with other people that are great creators and you tend to find talent through other people. So I feel like a lot of the skills that I've built as a media exec has actually been extremely useful um, as, a, as an investor in, um, in what I'm doing today. Thank you, Daniel. Okay, great. Yeah, thanks for that analogy. That really makes sense. And um, I'll stay with one other thing that you mentioned before in the media part, which was about the indigenous languages. So there you mentioned the aspect of inclusivity and diversity. So I was wondering in terms of the investments, first of all, how do you, <clears throat> what's your focus in that term in terms of inclusivity and diversity? And aside of um, also, do you see competitive advantages in having such uh, a focus? Um, so, I mean, one of the things that we're focused on as investors is investing in African founders. Um, we get founders from different places from time to time, either through our angel deal flow or through our Attica deal flow from different parts of the world. And if a if, uh, founder is extremely compelling, we'll look at it. But really, um, our, you know, our focus is investing on the continent. Um, we're very... Very, very important to us is um, women, women founding teams, women, um, women co-founders. We love to see this diversity on teams. We love to see inclus inclusion on teams. And we love to see women, if, if, if you don't have a co-founder that is a female, or if you're not a female founder and you still are building something really exciting, we definitely want to see you think about bringing more women on board and bringing more women on board on your cap table because we want women to be part of this amazing new revolution that we're creating and this wealth that will be generated from technology companies. We want women to be part of that dividend and we need to make sure that they are on the cap table for that to happen. So those are things that we look at. Those are things that are important to me um, when I'm looking at investing in um, local founders. Yeah, okay. Um yeah, okay, thanks for the answer. And yeah, maybe I was also like um in terms of um yeah, Attica Ventures, because I think that's quite a a newer a, a newer venture of yours. And then also from what you described, you can see there is a continuous prof professionalization of your initially angel investments towards uh, all the activities that you're carrying out now. So maybe in, in that term, how was the process of uh, basically of creating a fund? Um, it, I mean, luckily, um, I have a, an amazing um, partner and um, I always tell people, you know, find people that with complementary skills. And so we really complement each other um, from a skills perspective. She has um, public and private experience, but um, most importantly, she also comes from um, private equity investing. So that's been a really good complement of our skill set. But what's been really exciting to me and the challenge 
challenge, of course, is learning something new. I mean, I always love sort of learning and digging in and having sort of a deep dive around something that can challenge me, something that I can grow from. And this has been really one of those experiences. So transitioning from an angel investor in which you're using your own money into a general partner in which you're managing other people's uh, money is a very different mentality. And you think of companies differently. You think of founders differently. Um, and you have a fiduciary responsibility now. And so I think for me, those have been um, exciting, but at the same time, sort of just, you know, a shift and a change in the way I think and the way I analyze opportunities. But what's been, what's also important is that we know that there are some industries that are going to be defining the continent that are not getting investments and we want to be investing in those. So we're very, I mean, you know, we spoke earlier just about my experience with consumer products and developing different types of consumer products. And with 1.2 billion people on this continent, we know that consumer products is going to be a huge opportunity and investing in consumer technology companies is going to be important. And so we have our eyes squarely um, on, on that opportunity. What do you think is the future of technology on the continent and how is it going to affect media and movie production? Oh, yes. Sorry. Um, lots of questions in there, but um, let me attempt to answer a couple of them. So number one is that we already can see the trans the transformation that technology has had on media. So once again, this is globally, but on the continent, it is um, it is phenomenal because one of the things that was so hard before was setting up a media company. It was just so expensive, so difficult to set up a media company. And now today, that's not the case. Anyone, anywhere can set up a media company. You can start broadcasting. You can start telling people what you think. Or you can start writing. You can start publishing. There are sort of no big, um, there are no big um, gatekeepers anymore. So that's exciting. And the democratization of people's being able to tell their story. Um, technology, I think technology is going to help and facilitate resuscitating a lot of African languages, culture, and um, stories. And I think that these are going to be huge power. These are going to play a huge part in the global um, zygist, which is, you know, the, the, the heroes of the future are going to come from Africa when it comes to people telling stories. And you're already seeing that the African stories are already getting traction. Um, I think this is, I think we've just, I mean, we've not even started to crack that. But in the same way that I think that we're at day zero when it comes to technology on the continent, I think te technology is going to transform the everything we do and every facet of our lives. But I really am excited because I think it is going to create and be one of the biggest tools for eliminating poverty. Um, I think that once we start to actually see the benefit in the rural areas, in the smaller towns, um, and we all start to veer away from these huge urban areas, we're going to really see the development and the opportunity that it's going to present to the continent. And so that's why I'm very excited when I'm investing in early stage tech startups, because I see some companies and I know they're going to change the way we are. Every, they're going to change so much on the continent and they're going to create so many opportunities for people to to be to to escape poverty. Um, and I think that's one of the most important things that we can do for this generation in the same way that China has used technology and infrastructure development to really raise its population from poverty. I think we have that opportunity on the continent. And I think technology is going to play a huge role in that. So those two things, I mean, technology, in my opinion, is transforming everything we do. It's transforming media. It is going to once again, create an amazing class of creators that are going to write their own check and be able to really tell their own stories. And um, I'm looking forward to that. So, um, Diola, back to just your last answer when you spoke about the transformative power um, of technology and how it can help uh, the people to ex ex exit um, 
or escape poverty. So my question to you, looking at the demographic in Africa in general, but then especially in Nigeria, I always go back to the statistics when they say that by 2035, like more than half of the, the, the work, the population entering into working age will be from Africa. And then you look at both the African and the Nigerian context and you realize that these people are already born. So my question is, as you invest in these tech companies and build these tech companies, for them to grow to the kind of companies that, let's say, we see, for instance, in the U.S. that employ 50, 100,000 plus and more workers, where are, aside, of course, uh, it being global companies, but still, what do we need to do to train, not just to have the founders and the entrepreneurs, but also really have to have that broad um, workforce that can uh, be employed by those potential future tech giants? Thank you. Um, I mean, I think that this is a this is a question that we are all grappling with and we all struggle with. And we all know that um, today we don't have the infrastructure to educate and train people. And so we know that there also has to be a lot of innovation around how we develop the next the skills for the next generation of people. And some of those are just basic skills so that they can adopt technology and they can be part of this Tech, you know, transformative opportunity. The other thing that we need to think about when we look at education, because I think at the root of this is how do you educate people? How do you upskill people? How do you get people to be part of this, of this, of this opportunity? And I think um, we need to think of education differently. We need to think of education. Um, one of the platforms that I love is they're doing ed education in indigenous languages. So you sign on to the platform and you can learn anything in your language. And I think that going back, I mean, if this feels like we're coming full circle, I think that we need to start to use our own language, um, even as we develop things and as we, as part of our creativity, especially since we have the population that is going to be able to support that. So I think that once again, we all need to continue to have conversations around how and what it is that we need to build that can actually employ huge amounts of people. Um, we need to figure out solutions to our food crisis. We have a food crisis on the continent um, that is going to provide a huge opportunity for people, but not in not in the current form of how government is doing it. Um, and so I think this is going the solution is going to come from the private sector. And you can already see that in some of the companies that are pitching. They're using technology to solve some of those problems. Um, health is going to be a huge part of that because people have to be healthy for them to be able to actually contribute. And so I think that there are going to be some sectors that are going to stand out in being in leading this transformation. But how do we get people onto those platforms? How do we educate them? How do we empower them? How do we get people to create more things? I think that's an ongoing conversation that we all have to continue to have with each other, but also that Africa has to continue to have with itself. So that's 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 how I see that solution. Thank you. Okay. Um, Lawal Bakari, you can unmute yourself so we take the last question from you. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Thank you, Biola, for another opportunity to hear from you. Um, I just want to uh, get into the mind of a young creator who probably is somewhere listening right now or would listen to this podcast. Um, in order not to overstretch, what are the first three things that they may consider if they hope to get invest in investments down the line? Um, what are the key thing, things that you feel they should consider or start doing now? Maybe three, for example. I hope the question is clear. Thank you. Yes, it is, Lawal. Thank you. It's always good to hear from you. Thank you for joining us. Um, I think that if you are a creative somewhere sitting sitting out there, I think the the thing that you want to do is start doing things, start creating things, let people see the things you're creating. 
Um, it's always, I mean, of course, it's always great to be able to get investment right away, but people want to see something to be able to invest in you. So if there's, if you're writing, try to, you know, continue writing and try to see if you can get people to buy what you're selling. Um, people don't care how many people are buying. People want to see that you've been able to convince people to actually buy something from you. And I think that's, I mean, that's also part of what I'm looking at when I'm looking at investors. There is a company that just pitched us. They're creating content. They're broadcasting. They're creating content using their their friends and um, their phones, and they're broadcasting that content on YouTube. And they showed us the viewership that they already are garnering without. And these are this is all organic, just using what they have, and they're trying to raise money. And right there, you can see that. These, you know, this is a team of very young people that are creating and they're going to create with or without you as an investor. And you want to see those type of things in a team that this is a team that are going to go out there and build things. If you I mean, if you come on the journey, you're the lucky one. And I think that's what you look. That's what investors are looking for. Sometimes people that no matter what they transcend and they continue to just build and people want to see that persistence. I hope that's how, um, that's that's um, so. Continue to build. Figure, I mean, you know, put 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 it on platforms where people can see and you can share, and you know, with or without investors, you're going to go on your journey. Investors will be lucky to come on that journey with you, and that's the attitude you have to have. Okay, do you have any last words? I mean, I think, you know, one of the things for me that I see every day is I see amazing people making amazing things. There's so many things you want to invest in. I wish I had more money to invest in things. Um, but what always still stands out to me are the people that continue to just do what they do. There's a young lady. Um, I loved everything she was doing. I wished I had liquidity at the time to invest. I didn't. But, you know, she wrote she wrote her script she she acted and casted her friends in it and directed it. Um, and the other day she just sent me a, a, a teaser and a trailer. And um, I mean, during this process, I was able to see partnerships that I can help her with. Um, when you see people really going out there to make something different, to tell a different narrative, a different story, if you have money, you will invest. Um, if you don't have money, you try to figure out a way to help them. And so I think what you want to do is be that person that people want to add value to what you're building. And when you have a chance, also try to add value to what other people are building. I think that's one of the the most important things to do as you start to build um, your solution or whatever, whatever it is that you're building that you want to use to change the world. Make sure that along the way, you're adding value to what other people are doing and constantly associate and find people that can add value to what you're doing. But I want to say thank you guys for having me. This has been a fun evening um, and just sharing and talking about two of the things I'm passionate about when it comes to Africa, which is media um, and our narratives, our stories and investing um, in the future. So thank you for having me. I had a great time. Thank you very much for joining us to build out. So this has been the Change Africa podcast, uh, Twitter live space conversation with myself, Isaac Kujiri Nwabwa. And I'm here with my co-host, Daniel. We have these conversations. We've had a lot of them with some amazing African leaders who are really at the helm of the African transformation that we all want to see. Today, we have had Biola Alabi, who is an astute media personnel, uh, builder, investor. And we have had you as our audience, and we thank you very much for making time to join us. Hopefully, you follow us and you follow the podcast and we'll continue to have these conversations that will contribute to building Africa. Thank you for joining us.